passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Good morning once again. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Whatever it is that you did, whether you spent some time with friends or with family, whether you were traveling, whether you had that conversation about politics with your family members that everyone, it seems like, was advising against, whether you went Black Friday shopping or not, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. But more importantly, I hope you had the chance to express some of your gratitude to the many blessings that God has given us. Not just us as a church, not just you individually, not just as a nation, but the ways that God pours out his blessings upon us each and every day. And this morning we're going to be looking at one of the ways that God blesses not just his church, not just his people, but really the ways that God blesses every single person on the face of the planet, why God cares for every single person, regardless of how close to him they are or how far away from him they are. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 47. We're going to be finishing up this chapter. And if you notice, after today, there's only three chapters left. There's a little bit of a cheer that's coming out from, from some of you, at least inwardly. We're going to be in Genesis 48, 49, and 50 uh, over the next few weeks. And as we come to uh, these last few chapters, we're going to notice there's a significant change in the book. There's a significant change in the book of Genesis. Because up to this point, as we've been going through Genesis, it's really been focusing on how God has been faithful, how God has been faithful in caring for his people in the historical past, events that actually happened, how God cared for Abraham as he and Sarah were waiting for their promised son, Isaac, how God cared for Isaac in the midst of famine, how God cared for Jacob in the midst of Mesopotamia or when his sons were, uh, were doing some terrible things to the people of Shechem, how God has cared for his people in the past. And this morning we see a switch. We continue to see how God cared for his people in the past. But we see a future focus as well. And that's the the focus of the rest of the book of Genesis. There's a, a focus not just on God's faithfulness in the past. Not just God's faithfulness in spite of our own unfaithfulness. But there's this shift to focus on the future. We've been looking at how God has taken care of the seed of the nation of Israel. How God has been at work in this group of people that he has a special relationship with. And today we see a focus on the coming seed of Israel. On the coming Messiah. The one that the entire Old Testament points to. That's really the focus of the last few chapters of Genesis. It's rich in the promises of God. Specifically focusing on the coming Messiah. And I think it's abundantly appropriate for us to spend the last few chapters of Genesis uh, during this time of Advent. I mentioned earlier that today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent literally just means coming. It, is the ref- it refers to the, the time 
set aside by the church before the coming of Jesus celebrated on Christmas Day. It is a time for the church to prepare their hearts. It's a time for the church to focus their minds on the incarnation or on the birth of Christ. And coincidentally, the last few chapters of Genesis focus or look forward to the moment that we're about to celebrate in a few weeks. They look forward to the moment of Christ's birth. The entire Old Testament, all of the promises, look forward to this moment. And it is that moment that we are able to base all of our hope in. As we stand on the other side of the manger, on the other side of the cross, we are able to hope in the same place that the promises of the Old Testament look forward to. Over the next few weeks, I think it's appropriate for us to just have these words of the book of Hebrews in mind. Hebrews was written thousands of years after the events of Genesis 47, but it's looking back at the events of the entirety of Genesis, of Exodus, uh, of the entire Old Testament, and it spends some time looking at the mindset of Jacob, at the mindset of Joseph, at the mindset of the rest of Joseph's brothers. And it says this, Hebrews chapter 11, these, referring to everyone that we're going to look at this morning, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As I just mentioned, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Benjamin, Levi, Simeon, every single person that is alive in Genesis 47, that is a part of the family of God, every single person we encounter in this passage dies without fully experiencing the promises of God. And yet they died recognizing that no matter how blessed they are in this life, no matter how much God gives them in this life, this is not the end. That there is something better in store. And that it is this trust, it is this faith that serves as the motivation for every single thing that they do that honors God in the book of Genesis. This morning, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Genesis 47. We're going to look at the result of the famine. Last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this famine that strikes Egypt and how God, in his sovereign providence, how he guides the people of Israel to survive this famine in Egypt. This famine lasts for seven years, and, and things get increasingly worse. People get increasingly desperate in the midst of the famine. And Genesis 47 shows us that God provides, not just for Israel, but that God provides for every single person in Egypt as well. How God cares not just for Israel, but how God cares for the entire world. If you have a Bible, I invite you to up, open up to Genesis 47. We're going to start in verse 13. Please follow along as I read aloud. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. 
And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Last week, we looked at this meeting between Pharaoh and Jacob. And as we looked at this interaction, as we looked at the ways that that Pharaoh blessed Jacob and blessed Israel, we also saw that Jacob blessed Israel. Pharaoh. And after this very personal exchange, after Pharaoh blesses the people of Israel with the land of Goshen, the narrator just jumps out to a 20,000 foot overview. Says, okay, we're not just going to focus on this small family, on this small interaction, but we're going to look now at how God is at work over everything and how God is taking care of all of Egypt at this moment. Not just focusing on one family, but for the millions in the midst of this food crisis in Egypt. See, for the first year or two, the people were able to use up their own stores of food. They had been told seven years before this that there was going to be a famine coming. And that's why they had to gather up all of this abundance of grain and give it to Pharaoh to take care of them in the future. And if they were smart... They would give Pharaoh the amount that he needed during this abundance, and they would save some up for themselves. They'd take care of themselves, so that way they had something to live on when the famine came. Of course, some people didn't do that. Some people weren't able to do that. And and they began to use up their own stores of food over the course of the first year of the famine, the first few months of the famine. But for the most part, people began coming to Joseph for grain. They began to come and try to buy grain from Joseph. And day after day, Joseph and his employees meet with these Egyptians. They meet with these foreigners and sell them grain. Now, as you can imagine, if a famine lasts for seven years and there's no way for us to get more food except for buying it from Pharaoh, now money will run out. Money eventually runs out for these people. For some, it it runs out on day one. They didn't have enough money in the bank, and so they run out, and they're really at a loss for what to do. Others, they're able to survive for a few months based off of what they've stored up and what they've got in their savings accounts. And for some of them, those who get graduated from Financial Peace University with Dave Ramsey, the Egyptian edition, they had their fully stocked emergency fund. For these people, they maybe make it a six months. They maybe make it a full year before they also run out of money. They get to a point they don't have money. There's no end in sight for the famine, and so they begin to wonder, well, what are we going to do? The text continues in verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Everyone's run out of money. Their assets are are completely gone, at least the liquid ones are, and they come begging for food. And Joseph's response, at least to our modern ears, can sound cold. It can sound calculated. It can sound like he's taking advantage of the plights of those who are vulnerable in Egypt that have been left with virtually nothing because of this famine. 
After all, why would this man take away the assets of those who are in need? Why couldn't he just spare some grain for those who are desperate? Don't, don't let our, our modern-day tendencies get in the way of, of what this passage is saying. Joseph is really stuck in, in a virtually impossible situation. On the one hand, he, he wants to strike, uh, 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 or excuse me, on one hand, he wants to be compassionate. He wants to show compassion to those who are in need. On the other hand, he wants to be fair. He works for Pharaoh. He wants to honor Pharaoh with what he is doing. And, and Pharaoh might be generous. After all, Pharaoh was the one who blessed Joseph's family with a large tract of land, but he's still the king. And so on one hand, if Joseph doesn't distribute the food, if he doesn't share this food, hundreds of thousands of people will die. But on the other hand, he needs to do what his boss wants him to do. If you were Joseph, what would you do in this situation? Joseph finds the perfect balance. He says, if you don't have money, if you don't have the finances, go ahead and bring your livestock. We'll barter those for your grain. Bring your livestock and I will give you food. Notice what's happening here in this passage. First, Pharaoh owns all of the money in Egypt. Next, Pharaoh owns all of the livestock in Egypt. But as we look at this passage as a whole, if we look at the passage as a whole, we can realize, well, okay, maybe, maybe Joseph isn't as mean. Maybe he isn't as cold and calculated as we look, or as he looks at first glance. Because in other passages, or other parts of this passage, Joseph receives the land, and yet he continues to allow the people to live on it. These people sold their land, and yet were still allowed to live on the land in the houses that were now Pharaoh's. And it's very likely that the exact same thing happened with these livestock. They sold their livestock to Pharaoh, and yet in all likelihood, they continued to retain possession of these livestock. Just think of it practically. If they didn't, if they lost the possession of their livestock after selling it to Pharaoh, who would take care of it? Who would take care of the livestock of hundreds of thousands of people throughout Egypt. What this passage seems to be hinting at is that they didn't lose their livestock, but instead they have transitioned from owners to stewards of what once belonged to them. So Pharaoh owns all of the finances, and now Pharaoh owns all of the livestock. The passage continues in verse 18. And when that year ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both us and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die. And that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all of the land of Egypt for Pharaoh for all, from all of the Egyptians because they sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made them servants from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests 
he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. All right, so what takes place is, is first they run out of money, then they run out of livestock. They've used up all their cash reserves. They, they've forfeited the ownership of their livestock, and now they are still in need of food. So what do they do next? Well, they, they approach Joseph. Notice what the text tells us. It's not saying that Joseph suggests this. It's actually an idea that comes from the people themselves. They approach Joseph, and they offer themselves... And they offer their land in exchange for food. These people are desperate enough that they are willing to lose their freedom. They are willing to lose their land in order to survive this famine. Now remember, ancient slavery is different than modern day slavery. It's it's different than what we think of when we think of slavery. When we think of the transatlantic slave trade. It's not saying that it's a good institution, but that it was much better than what we oftentimes think of. At times, enslavement uh, to a just, to a generous master, like Pharaoh in this passage, because we've seen that, that Pharaoh is just, that Pharaoh is generous. At times, enslavement to a master like this is preferable to being vulnerable, to being poor, to being on the outside of a society like this. You might be saying, well, why? What on earth would be preferable about being a slave as opposed to being free? I'll give, me, give you an example. Uh, Crystal and I, we went to uh, my parents' place this past Sunday, or excuse me, not this past Sunday, this past weekend uh, for Thanksgiving. And on our way back yesterday, uh, our, our daughter is sitting in the back in her car seat, and our son is sitting in the back in his car seat, and he's got it all reclined all the way back. And there I am, sitting as far forward as possible because we packed way too much stuff on this trip, and there's my wife doing the exact same thing, trying to take a nap on our drive back, and she's flipping from side to side, trying to get comfortable. And I just look back at my son, who falls asleep within five minutes in this very comfortable seat, and say, I wish that I was him. I wish that I didn't have to worry about getting us back to Spencer. I wish that I could just close my eyes. I wish that I was tiny enough that I could just sit in a seat, be fully relaxed on this drive back. There are times where it's easier to be a child. There are times where where it's easier for us to not have to deal with the responsibilities that come with being an adult. And in some sense, that's exactly what this passage is describing for the Egyptians. They had no options. They had no possible way of taking care of themselves. And so for them, in one sense, it was better to have Pharaoh take care of them instead. Now, this is a last resort. It's not something that they volunteered for right off the bat. It's the last resort for them, but it's not as bad as you would think from first glance. Remember, just like the cattle, these people are able to live on the land that they once owned. Pharaoh is fair. Pharaoh is compassionate. He now owns the land, but he continues to let the people live on it and to steward it for him. So in one sense, everything has changed. It's been a drastic change for the people during this famine. They've lost their freedom, but in another sense, their lives have changed very little. They are still under Pharaoh's rule. They still live where they once lived. They still own, or they still uh, watch over the livestock that they once owned. 
Pharaoh is just, and Pharaoh is compassionate thanks to the actions of Joseph here. And so ask yourself, if you're in, the, in a situation like what's just described here, let's say uh, another recession hits the United States. That's the modern-day equivalent of a famine. It's a recession. Not necessarily a famine, but a recession. Let's say another recession hits the United States, and in that recession, maybe it's the Great Depression, you lose your savings, you lose your assets, you lose your house, and somehow, this, this doesn't translate to today, but you somehow lose your own freedom as well. How would you respond? Well, in our culture, in our context, we wouldn't be all that happy. We'd probably be pretty sour. We'd probably be pretty disappointed with what had happened. And the Egyptians, of course, were probably a little down and out about what had happened, but they were so focused on the fact that they had survived that they were grateful. Take a look, starting in verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants of Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. How do the Egyptians respond to such terrible circumstances? They respond with gratitude. They say that Joseph and his actions have saved their lives. Many of us can look at this passage and say, Joseph just took advantage of the weak. He just took advantage of those who were in the worst spot imaginable because of this famine. But the reality is, he was the most popular man in all of Egypt. Consider this. Joseph had spent years as a slave. He had spent years as a prisoner unjustly because he did not commit the crime that he was in prison for. He had been sold by his own family. And many times over the course of those 13 years, I'm sure that Joseph was wondering, what on earth is God doing? He was wondering why on earth God did not intervene. Why God allowed this to happen to him. And we've talked in the past about the key to understanding this passage is that if God had intervened, if God had rescued him, when it would have been nice for Joseph, when he would have preferred to be rescued or spared from the difficult times, if God would have done that, then Joseph would have never heard these words, you have saved our lives. And just take a, take a step back. Isn't that the way God works sometimes? Isn't that the way God works sometimes? We have no idea what good is going to come out of our difficult times. We can go, for, go on for seasons without seeing an ounce of fruit from all of our integrity, all of our faithfulness at work, all of our honesty, all of our faithfulness to our family. We can see not an ounce of fruit from all of that. And meanwhile, we see those that cut corners, those that are nasty, those that are selfish, those that are conceited. All of those people can get ahead. And we can wonder, what on earth is God doing? Why am I going through this? Is it possible that God is doing the exact same thing in our lives as he did in Joseph's life. Is it possible that God is using the pain? God is using your inconvenience. God is using your struggles. Not just for your good. 
but for the good of others. It took decades, decades before Joseph heard the words, you have saved our lives. Decades passed before he had an ounce of an idea of how God was using his pain and his struggles. Is it possible that God is doing something in your life through the pain, through the hardship, through the difficulties for your people that are surrounding you? Or maybe for people that you haven't even met yet. Is it possible that you just haven't seen the fruit yet? Do not underestimate God's ability to use your circumstances, no matter how bad they are. And do not underestimate God's ability to use those circumstances, not just for you, but for those that are around you as well. So Joseph institutes this policy. He's not just concerned uh, about the time of the famine. He's not just concerned about getting through the famine, but he institutes this policy that says, from now on, Egypt will give 20% of their produce to Pharaoh. Joseph isn't just concerned about getting people through this famine. He's concerned about making sure there's a plan in place in case there's another famine and another famine and another famine. How are the people going to survive, not just today, but how are their children going to survive tomorrow? And so he says, 20% of your grain will be given to Pharaoh. And that might sound like a lot. Might sound like a, a pretty big tax bracket for us. But in all actuality, this is a very small amount in that day. Most ancient empires, most kings would charge anywhere between 30, 40, 50, 60% of the food that was produced in their kingdom would be given to the king. Joseph, again, he's asking for 20%. And in doing so, he is just, he's, he's honoring his master. He's doing what his employer wants him to do. And at the same time, he's being gracious. He's not taking advantage of those that are weak. He's not taking advantage of the Egyptians. Instead, he's placing a safety net in place for future famines. You might be saying, well, what are, what are these verses teaching us? They remind us in the background, not just through Joseph, but through Pharaoh as well, that God indiscriminately cares for all of humanity. God cares for all of humanity. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what they believe. God cares for humanity. It doesn't matter if they're Israelites, if they're Egyptians, if they're Canaanites, if they're Mesopotamians. God does not want them to perish in the midst of this famine. If God only cared about Israel, he would have found a way to provide manna in the wilderness, just like he did hundreds of years later, to just provide for Israel. But God cares for all of humanity. And the reason is, is because God is creator of all. God is the creator of all. And as creator, he lovingly cares for his creation. He continues to care for them. No matter how far from him they are, no matter how close they are to him, God cares for his creation. The same is true today. The same is true today. God loves every single person on the planet because he created them. Because he knit them together in their mother's womb. Because they bear his image. It doesn't matter if they are Christians in the United States or Buddhists in Nepal. It doesn't matter if they are atheists in the UK or if they are suicide bombers in the Middle East. God cares for every person, whether they deserve it. And most of us, newsflash, do not deserve God's love. Whether they deserve it or not, God takes 
care of them. God provides for them through common means. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, once said this. He says, Matthew 5, he, being God, makes his son, notice that word, his son, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God takes care of all of humanity. God indiscriminately cares for all of humanity because no matter how broken, no matter how far gone, no matter how lost they may seem, no matter how evil they may be, they still bear a shred of his image because they are his creation. And God is a good creator. Whether they recognize it or not, God is their creator and God loves them just like he loved the Egyptians thousands of years ago. Now, this love might not mean that they become uh, Christians. That might not mean that they are repentant and, and are saved from their sins. But God does save them from the famine. God does provide for humanity each and every day. And it is a sign of his grace. It is a sign of his mercy that is at work in our lives. God indiscriminately cares for all of humanity. But at the same time, that God loves all of creation as creator, at the same time he does interact differently with his people. God cares for all of Egyptian. He provides for the Egyptians, yes, but it's clear in this passage that this is also a contrast to how God takes care of his own people, how God loves a special kind of love for the people of Israel and by extension for his church today. Notice in verses 27 and in 28, we shift from Egypt now to focusing on Israel during this famine. It says this, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Compare how God takes care of Egypt, how he takes care of the Egyptians during the famine, and how he takes care of Israel during the famine. For Egypt, their lives are preserved. So this is a gift of grace from God. Their lives are preserved, but they lose their money, they lose their livestock, they lose their land, and they lose their freedom. Contrast that to Israel. In the midst of this famine, they are preserved, yes, and they grow in wealth. Because Pharaoh has given them the best of the land. Their livestock grow in number because they are the ones who watch over Pharaoh's herds. They are given the land of Goshen at no cost. And they remain free in spite of all that is happening to them and surrounding them during the famine. God may love all of humanity as creator. But he has a special love for his people who are a part of his covenant. Israel's success during this famine is actually more like Pharaoh, more like the most powerful man in the world than it is like the people that were living right next to them. Israel gained wealth, they gained livestock, and they gained land during the famine. What does Pharaoh gain? Pharaoh gains wealth, Pharaoh gains livestock, Pharaoh gains land. In fact, you could probably even make a comparison because people in, in ancient times would oftentimes refer to their slaves as children. It would refer to them as their children. The people of Israel, they multiply greatly. They grow in number of, of children. And what does Pharaoh gain during this time as well? He gains slaves or he gains children at the same time. 
Israel has more in common with the leader of Egypt and the, the commoners that are surrounding them. And this shows that God favors them. Now, you might be asking, well, why? Why does God have a special love for Israel and Pharaoh? I understand that God loves Israel, that he has a covenant with them, that a special relationship with them. But what about Pharaoh over here? The answer is found in Genesis 12, 3. We looked at it last week. This is God's calling for Abraham and his descendants. It says this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. The first part of Genesis 47 is Pharaoh blessing Israel. Pharaoh blesses Israel with wealth, He blesses Israel with livestock. He blesses Israel with land. What comes next? God blesses Pharaoh. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises not just to Israel, but to every other people on the face of the planet. God blesses Pharaoh beyond his wildest dreams because God is fulfilling his promises to Israel and by extension that God is fulfilling his promises to those who are around Israel. These two verses, verses 27 and 28, are making it very clear that God is a God who keeps his promises. But more importantly, God is keeping his promises in the midst of famine, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty. This is a group of people that should be shrinking in size. You don't want more mouths to feed in the midst of a famine, yet in the midst of the famine, they are continuing to fulfill the creation mandate that we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The the mandate that God gave to Adam and to Eve and by extension all of humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, that is exactly what is happening here in Genesis chapter 47. These verses are reminding us that God's love for his people is unique. God's love for his people is unique. It is special. It is not just the love of a creator, but it is the love of a father. This past week, there was an article published uh, in Desiring God called, Does Christianity Make Life Harder? Does Christianity Make Life Harder? And the author interviews a number of different theologians who who are asked this question, does Christianity make life harder? And they they look at what the Bible says, and they look at, at their personal experiences, the experiences of people today, and they all, without a doubt, said yes. Life is harder because of Christianity. Life is harder because we have to die to self when other people who aren't Christians don't have to die to self. We don't get to fulfill all of our base desires like other people that are outside of the church. We can suffer at the hands of others because we are Christians. Life is harder because of Christianity. But there was a caveat with everything they said. While life may be harder as Christians, at the same time, it is undeniably better. Life may be harder, but it is undeniably better. Christians have the chance to not just experience God as their creator who loves them, but to experience God as their father who loves them. They have the chance to experience Jesus not as the sustainer of creation, but to experience Jesus as the savior of creation, their friend and their brother the one who died so that they could become co-heirs with him to the inheritance that God gives to the Son. Christianity may make life harder, 
but it makes life infinitely better as well. You see, God loves everyone. God loves everyone on the face of the planet, but God has a special, unique love for those who are part of his family, those who repent and turn to him and become a part of his family. And this passage, it just focuses on this family, on those who are a part of this promise in the last few verses of this chapter. Pick up in verse 29. When the times drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fa- let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. At the beginning of Joseph's life, Jacob had seventeen years with his son before he was gone, sold into slavery by his brothers. Now here at the end of his life, he has another 17 years with Joseph in Egypt. For 17 years, he took care of Joseph. And now for 17 years, Joseph takes care of Jacob. These 17 years, five of them were in the midst of the famine. The remaining 12 were in the the difficult years following the famine as everyone is trying to recover. And Israel is blessed by God. God uses Pharaoh, God uses Joseph to bless Jacob and the rest of the family. He sees the promises of God beginning to come to fruition. He begins to see these promises of God come in a way that his father did not, that his grandfather Abraham did not. He's becoming great. He is becoming a nation. He's becoming to own land. He is being a blessing to those who are around. He has a special relationship with God. He is seeing God's promises come to life. And it seems like Jacob has everything that he could have ever wanted. But Jacob knew better. He knew that as good as, as Egypt was, it was not the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing lied back in the land of Canaan. It lied in the promised land. And so Jacob makes Joseph swear to him, saying, You must bring my body back to Canaan and bury me in Canaan where Abraham is buried and where Isaac is buried. Do not let me be buried here in Egypt, but bring my body back to Canaan. You might be saying, well, Why is he so specific here? The reason he's so specific is because this is a declaration of his faith. This is a statement of his faith. It is a reminder to his children to have that same faith. It's almost like he's saying, we have been blessed beyond our wildest dreams here in Egypt. We own land that is right alongside the Nile, that is fruitful and has made us fruitful. We have increased greatly in number and in finances, but this is not the end. God has something bigger and God has something better in store for us. God has something greater for his people. Go back to the beginning of Jacob's life. At the beginning of Jacob's life, he is deceitful. He's a schemer. He lies. He takes advantage of his brother. He deceives and manipulates his father. He's a terrible person. But at the root of all of this wickedness is a kernel of gold. He did all of this because he longed for the promises of God. He longed for the promises of God. That doesn't excuse his actions by any means. But it shows that he never lost sight 
from the beginning of his life all the way to the end here in Genesis 47, he never lost sight of the promise of God. In all of the ups of his life and all the downs of his life, whatever he experienced, this hope in the promise remained. And he wanted it more than anything else. What about you? In the ups of your life, in the downs of your life, when you are close to God, when you are far away from God, does this hope, does this desire remain? Do you want the promises of God? Do you want something greater that comes from God more than anything? For Jacob, that meant he was buried in Canaan. It was a declaration of his faith, a declaration of his trust in God, that God would fulfill his promises to his family. And as Jacob's spiritual descendants to us today, we should have that same hope. We should have that same longing. No matter how good our lives may be, God's people long for something better. God's people long for something better. That's what this passage is all about. We mentioned that this passage, it it transitions from looking at the past to looking at the future. And as Jacob's spiritual descendants, let's have that same forward focus. Let's have that same hope in the promise This promise is fulfilled at the cross, but we see it one day will be fully consummated. It will be fully realized in the day of Jesus' return. And so as we enter into Advent this season, I think that's our challenge. Our challenge this Advent is to wait for a greater blessing, to wait for something greater. Because this Advent, Genesis is telling us that we await a greater blessing. A greater blessing that's better than presence. That is better than nostalgia, better than family, better than the blessings of, these, of this life. We await a greater blessing, and that greater blessing is found in Christ the King in the manger and on the cross. As we started this morning, I mentioned Advent is the season of waiting. It refers to the coming of Christ, his first coming. And as we await for this first coming, it's meant to, to prepare our hearts for his second coming. That's the reason why we celebrate Christmas. It's not just so we can put uh, presents under the tree or, or put a nativity scene uh, up in our house. We, we celebrate Christmas because it reminds us, it, it pulls at our heartstrings to get us to hope and to long and to focus on the second coming, to focus on Jesus' return one day. Friends, as Christians, we hope for something greater, and that something greater is found in a manger. As Christians, we hope for something greater, and that something greater is found at the cross. As Christians, we hope for something greater, and that something greater is Jesus paying the price of our sin that we could not pay so we could become his family. As Christians, we hope for something greater, and that something greater is treasuring Christ, is longing for Christ and his work on our behalf more than anything else in the world. Jacob longed for something greater. It was found in Jesus. Do we long for something greater as well? Do we long for something greater as well? Titus 2 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and because that grace appeared, we now live awaiting our blessed hope. We now live awaiting our blessed hope, our something greater, which will be fully realized at the second advent, at the second coming of Jesus. And so ask yourself this morning, take some time to reflect on this. Are you longing for something greater? Are you longing for something greater? Be honest with yourself. Are you longing for something greater? Are you looking to Christ's return as the greatest source of hope and joy in your life? More than any job, more than any sort of of financial stability, more than any sort of relationship. Are you longing for something greater? This Advent, let us take the time to focus our hearts, to focus our minds, to focus our affections on Christ. Like Jacob, let's not be content with letting our bones be buried in Egypt. But let us make a declaration of our faith in something greater that is to come. As Christians, we await a greater blessing. And that greater blessing is found in the kingdom of God and in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, first and foremost, For the coming of your son. As we begin this Christmas season. The season of Advent. We thank you for the reminder. That you once came. And the assurance. The surety that we have. That you are coming back. God help us. To long. For your return. Help us to desire it. To thirst after it to place our affections on it, that you would come and that you would reign not just in our hearts, but over all the earth. God, help us to long for something greater. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.